All right, hey guys, and welcome to the Three Drinks In podcast, episode number 267. I'm your host, Vince. Over there is your host, Phil. Hey. There he is. In this episode, we are talking about Oppenheimer, directed by Christopher Nolan. But before we get started, we want to ask you to please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Make sure that you leave a five-star rating and maybe even a review. You can follow us on Twitter or X, whatever it's called now, I'm not even sure, Uh, Instagram or threads, and you can like us on Facebook. You can email us at threedrinksinpodcast at gmail.com, and don't forget to check out our merchandise over at tpublic.com. Is is it still called Twitter? No. No, it's called X. It's called X. What what does it say on my phone? I, I have the new icon. And some, some oh, things it's called will X. Say, yeah, it's well, called it X. Says X. Yeah, some things will still say like if I type it in the box, the button to hit it is tweet. But when I hit like hey, load new tweets, it'll like, it'll say load new posts instead. <laughs> yeah, so like if I um, if I type in like so on the iPhone, you can just sort of like pull down your finger and it'll you can search for any app you have in your on your phone. If I type T W I. X shows up as an option. Hmm. So it's, I mean, that's just, that's good code. To like, that's how you, you know, would search, you know, like this, like this, the search parameters for your, for your apps include like, oh, I, cause either I used to call this Twitter. We're going to call it Twitter till it dies. Like, well, you, we're never not going to call it Twitter. X is stupid. It's like, yeah. Like that band that was like three, three, Exclamation points was its name. Oh yeah, <laughs> it was a terrible band name because you couldn't actually say it out loud, you know, or like look for it on the internet. Like it wasn't possible. My favorite band name is the the. Just <laughs> so obnoxious. The best band name is the band. No, because that's cool. I mean, the the is like a, is an impossibly annoying name to say. Oh, like the best stupid band name. Oh yeah, the stupid band name. Oh okay, not actually good band name. Yeah, I mean, also the band was actually good, right? They they, they were Bob Dylan's backup band, right? That was the thing. I I'm not yeah, a huge. They were, uh, they were like, okay. Yeah, yeah, they, they were, were okay. They were great. Richard Manuel, yeah. great. Sure. <laughs> we get that song from the Counting Crows about it. So. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's a great song. That's a great album. It's a ridiculously great album. It's like it's one of those first albums. I'm like, oh wow, every th- track on this album is great. Even the ones that aren't great are still pretty good. That's one of the last albums I ever like burned a hole in yeah. playing on repeat. Like, you don't really do that anymore, especially because nobody has CDs. But um, I used to play that like on long drives and stuff, and just over and over. Yeah. Those days are over now too. So. Belt it out in the car. Yeah, kind of a thing. Talking it's... about uh, belting things out. <laughs> <laughs> we saw Oppenheimer the other day. <laughs> that was not a good segue. <laughs> was well, there a belt was... involved in that movie? I, I don't. He well, was, was very thin. He needed a belt. Was the score, which bludgeoned you over the head. Oh my god! For three straight hours. So I saw this, 
I was I was supposed to go see it at like 10:30 a.m. the day it came out. And my son like goofing off at camp at the bowling alley rolled over his ankle and needed like to come home. So like next day we stay home. I didn't get to go to the movies. And I went like the next Tuesday. And so I didn't know that AARP had rented the entire theater that day for for the members. And so I sat there with every person over 70 that lives in my area in like the IMAX showing at noon. And how many of them came out of there alive? <laughs> I really expected to just see like painted versions of them on their seats at the end of the whole thing. I mean, like I was told by Christopher Nolan to see this in IMAX. He made a lot of effort to shoot it in IMAX. You know, this theater you know, had... They get more money when you do that, right? That's why they're saying that. They're Not at 1230. That's, that, that, that's the discounted rate. So okay. I saw I saw it for a reasonable fee. But, um, you know, and like this place had a good aspect ratio. Theater was, the screen was masked really well. It was one of those things like it's not true IMAX because, of course, in the weeks leading up to all these things, all over Twitter and TikTok, they're talking about how, um, you know, real IMAX is only like 100 theaters in the, in the entire country. I think we, we, we did this. We, 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 we mentioned this for... Um, uh, Mission Impossible, but like, you know, I'm not going down to Manhattan just to see this movie. Like, it's really not that important to me. So, like, it's sort of like faux IMAX, but it's close enough. But, um, but Jesus Christ, was it loud in there. Like, I, I really expected, like, that Grandpa Simpson joke to play in there. Like, turn it up! Man, mm-hmm. thud sound systems. But, um, holy crap, this was loud. Yeah, it was um, loud. Yeah. Um, yeah, I saw this in a real theater and not the, <laughs> the, the local, um, classic theater. There's a theater by me. That's like a historic theater. The one that shows movies for six bucks on the weekends. And that's it. Like you can't see it during the week. And it looks like the old Muppet theater. It has like <laughs> balconies and ornate Corinthian designs and like a curtain, and it's fascinating to walk in there, but the screen is not that big and the sound is not that great. So I was like, I don't know. I, this is supposed to be a Nolan movie. I should probably see it with like an actual speaker system. So I paid out the ass to watch this movie. <laughs> and it's like to the point where you like, I don't even buy popcorn or anything because I'm like, I'm, I refuse to, to bend over anymore for these people. And I don't, I don't want to buy $9 popcorn. It's going to be done before the credits roll. Um, but it was loud either, you know, it was loud too. So, uh, yeah, this, no, this, but, uh, the screw was, was pervasive to say the least. Yeah. But I'm glad because I could hear it because there was so much talking. Like I saw Indiana Jones in the crummy theater and I could not really understand what they were saying yeah, primarily I mean, because the speaker system wasn't very good. I mean, everybody says that like, if you saw tenant at home, the reason that you couldn't hear that movie was because the sound was mixed for a movie theater. And I, I, I'm i not sure how I feel about that. Like, I find that to be 
pretty obnoxious as a response to something like if you're going to like if you're talking about what you're doing being inaccessible to an entire human sense depending on where you're watching it then what you're really doing is making two things or making one thing really shitty except if you're standing in one location like if you're going to sell me something that I'm watching at home, like, you know, watching Tenet at home, which I did because yeah, that was like the height of the, the Delta wave of COVID. Like, I, I wasn't eager to go to the goddamn movies at that point. And you're telling me, like, oh, no, no, you you didn't enjoy it because you didn't see it in, in the theater. I go, no, no, I didn't enjoy it because you didn't bother to do your job and make a product that you could sell that was audible like it just what it just it was just that that's that's the lazy man's answer to, the, to that question what you really want to do is like if you if that's then you do two mixes you do a mix for for the home release then you do a mix for the movie theater but like do two of them don't fucking stand on your high horse and say like well unless you go pay 78 dollars to go see this in midtown Manhattan at the at the IMAX, you're never gonna enjoy it the way that I want you to. Well, that's not the point. It's not all about you, Christopher. Yeah, I I don't know. There's plenty of people who would say the opposite. And what do you know? You're just some yutz. Oh yeah. He's the, he's the filmmaker. The auteur. Yeah. So I don't know. It's I don't know. It, but I saw it the way that it then that God intended apparently, and so. It, we could hear everything. So, what did you think of Oppenheimer? I, I, I don't know. I <laughs> after I'm all sorry. that, I don't know. Uh, uh, okay, <laughs> now, please enjoy the next that. fifty minutes of me figuring out what I thought about Oppenheimer. <laughs> if you wanted more hemming and hawing, here it is. <laughs> That's not, not what I expected you to say. <laughs> if we had to rename this, it would be Hemming and Hawing. <laughs> Two guys trying to figure it out. I should jerks. <laughs> <laughs> That's why it's free, everybody. Let's not. That's let's, true. Let's not bust our balls about this too much. I don't know. I I look at so you. Nothing about this struck me as a Christopher Nolan movie. There are things about other movies of his that I can kind of recognize as Christopher Nolan movies. You know, I've seen Memento, The Prestige, which is I think my favorite of his movies. I think it's one, that's in my top ten. The Prestige, I think it's movie's great. The two first Dark Knight movies were phenomenal. Um, I'm trying to think of other films of his that I, like, I can pick out of a lineup. And um, I really can't right now. But, like, you know, those movies sort of have a style and they have a look and they have a, you know, a storytelling point of view that's interesting and a story that they want to tell. Here, it was like, it was far more an internal story than I think I was expecting. And it, it was a good enough balance. In three hours, you get... Everything going on inside this guy's head, a lot of things going on in the grand sort of geopolitical arena. And, the, you know, things, 
there's just there's so much happening. Like I I kind of don't feel like I have I, that I I have enough to go on to talk about this right now without seeing it again. It's a very dense movie, mm-hmm. and I didn't dislike it. They were at points when they were about to test the bomb where I was literally on the edge of my seat. And I I was already smushed between two older gentlemen and I, I felt bad about taking up armrest space because I was the smaller of the, you know, of the three of us. And I was like, all right, I can just sit there like this. And, you know, they get, they get close to detonation and I'm really like, it's, you know, he can draw out tension like nobody's business as a director. And like I found that like I was like sucking in my my tongue, like I was like puckering, like everything about me was just really tensing up. And so that part was exciting. I thought that you know Cillian Murphy was brilliant in this. He really disappeared very much into this role. Um, you know, I didn't recognize Robert Downey Jr. for like a good five ten minutes. And this is not a guy who hides behind his face. He's very much like a in-your-face kind of actor, like Will Smith is like, you know, this is who you get kind of a thing. And um, I don't know. I think it was different than I expected because it focused so much on the internal aspects of, you know, his, his re, you know, journey with having done this. I didn't know much about Oppenheimer. I learned more about him after the fact. I mean, it's good. And it's, uh, you know, I... I can't say it's a great movie just yet, but like it's a very, very good movie. But to unpack all of it, I feel like I like I have to go spend another three hours watching it, and I don't have the time to do that. I have the inclination, like I'd I'd like to do that again, but I I don't have the the time to devote to that, you know. And and so like I can look at all the pieces of the movie, and all of them are excellent. Every actor in this brings their A game to it, you know, from Matt Damon to the guy from 10 Things I Hate About You, David Crummeltz, who you haven't seen since that movie, uh, and Firefly, um, you know, you know, Remy Malek, who shows up to play like, you know, like five minutes in this movie, like everybody in the movie is somebody, you know. And so all that is good, and the writing is good, and the cinemat- and the c- cinematography is good, and the score is good, if not, I- I- you know, insisting upon itself. And like everything about it is good. Did it make a great movie? No, I don't think so. Did it make a very, very good movie? Yes, absolutely, 100%. So, I mean, barring an, like a second viewing, which I don't have the time to do, like, I really... I feel like I'm short short shifting it as a reviewer to say like you know I have an opinion because I, don't know, I just seem like I feel inadequate to to that task right now, which is unfortunate because that's all we're doing here right now. <laughs> we had one job. <laughs> um, okay. So I don't know. What did you think about Oppenheimer? Um. I thought it was an extremely obvious Christopher Nolan movie. Yeah, uh, yeah. You had you had the score that was trying to blast you out of the theater. I mean, yeah, that was the most Nolan thing going on here. Was this? You score. know, 
you had a fairly simple story told in an overly complex way and slightly pretentious as well. Um, slightly? Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, now he's being naive. <laughs> <laughs> there's all the janky edits and cuts that are like, even if you're about to settle in and look at something, we're moving on to this, so you better keep up. There's the overly intelligent dialogue that's not cutesy, like um, the guy who does the West Wing. Oh, Aaron Sorkin? Yeah, like it's not yeah, it's better than Aaron Sorkin, that's for sure. Yeah, but they still don't sound like people exactly. They sound sort of like robots. Um, and And you have it go on way too long because you're trying to do too much that is not, you know, and some parts are more interesting than others. Obviously the the development of the atom bomb and the test, you know, that middle hour, fantastic, you know, edge of your seat. And then the beginning is okay. And the end, the last hour, you're like, how much longer is this movie? It's another hour. And then it's fine. Like, it's not like it's bad movie, but it's just so much extra that doesn't, it would have been a great movie if it was two hours. It was a good movie because it was three, you know, and it, because of all of that, it, it, it felt, I felt like I was watching interstellar or something where I was like, this is just going, you know, I'm enjoying this, but I want to leave now. <laughs> this is going on too long. I mean, and, I think- you know, it just, it, it wasn't overly complicated because there just was a lot of it. And it's just he was just telling it in in a nonlinear way, so you had to pay attention. Nobody was looking at their phone during this movie. No, I was, like a, you, I was in a crowded theater. I, I felt like I really, I don't like feeling dumb, <laughs> but like That's I really, <laughs> I really do feel like I missed a lot of whatever was supposed to be going on in this movie, like. You know, oh, the bad guy, the bad guy for whatever reason is is you know Struss or Straws or whatever. Um, you know, Robert Downey Jr.'s character's name is, and you know, like you're really not sure what it is you're watching. Like I watched about a thirty minute YouTube video from the channel Veritasium, which is like a science um, YouTube channel that does all kinds of stuff. And, you know, they gave a whole, you know, there's a whole thing about Oppenheimer and just gave you all the backstory. It's like, oh, so that was, that, that's what was going on here. Like, you really didn't have an idea of what, like, you, you kind of slowly had to figure out everything about the story. None of the story was very, very clear because it was told out of sequence. It was told in different color palettes. It was like, you know... And basically what it was was that after dropping the atomic bomb, Oppenheimer himself becomes, you know, critical of the next step after that. Like he happily built the thing, but mostly just to say, we built it, we have it, it's really terrifying, and we should all agree not to build any more of them because no good will come from that. And he was apparently in the minority. He was vocal and popular and, you know, people listened to him. 
But for the most part, people were like, no, we really need to build the bigger bomb after this one just so we could continue to maintain superiority in the arms race with the Russians. And okay, but that's, I don't know, like this, that, that story came at you sideways. And the whole time what's put in front of you is much more internal, like internal stories and internal stories and internal struggles to to him and that like so you find out at the end that there's supposed to be like a big reveal like it turns out that everybody doesn't like straws and like he's really been behind the whole thing all along and all the aides find out after the fact that he's you know playing possum about like being um interviewed by the Senate about this position for like, you know, the commerce secretary or whatever, or, or whatever it is. And it turns out that he's really been pulling the strings for this thing that you, you've been watching the whole time. I'm like, that's not bad. It's just a lot to keep in your head while you're also building the atomic bomb. <laughs> so there's just so much going on here. I feel like it kind of collapses under its own weight. Am am I crazy in that, or is that did 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 you experience some of that like like that, that mental fatigue as well? Uh, I don't want you to make you feel dumb because I know you don't like that, but I don't. No. <laughs> I don't like <laughs> I to feel dumb. I didn't experience any of that because they were all wrapped up together so tightly. By the end, you're like, yeah. oh, okay, yeah, but like it was just so many like strings they had to tie together into one knot, and I was like, okay, and then. Yeah, I mean, it was presented like like you said, very com like a simple idea presented com complexly. And the downside of that is that some people feel like maybe I missed something, and that may not be true. I don't think so. I think I'll, I think everything was there. It's just that it it's told. You're you know. What you're looking for is the through line of if I'm going to follow this man's life and his varying reactions to things about how he feels, then you your mind gravitates towards the bomb because the bomb is the linear part of the plot. We don't have this. We need to make it quickly. How are we going to do that? We made it. We tested it. It works. Hooray. But his feelings on all of those things go back and forth, and they're constantly vacillating. Part of that is the way the movie tells it. Like they don't struggle with him uh, struggling about his feelings about the bomb until after it's already been done, yeah. and they don't talk about him, you know, and his womanizing, and and how he feels about that. It happens in the beginning, where he like knocks up um, Emily Blunt and he marries her but he continues womanizing throughout the whole film anyway. So like dealing with each issue is told in different, like, like if you have a long string, it's all like in these different nodes and like the through line is the bomb, but all these different things about his personality happen at different points. The other way that the problem is that he himself vacillates between what he's doing purposefully because he's doing the wrong thing he's hanging out with communists and weirdos and traitors and he's blasé about all of that and to protect himself he just doesn't say anything concrete so they're always like 
you know, where do you stand? Who are your friends? You know, what's your security clearance? And he always shrugs like, well, I technically didn't do any of that stuff. So like he doesn't give them any concrete information purposefully because he doesn't want to get in trouble. So like what it is exactly that he wants to be doing at any given moment is sort of up in the air. You know what I mean? Kind of. Like when he says, you know, like, I'll give you an example. In the beginning, and he gets the job teaching at the at the university, he and all of the students are trying to unionize the teaching staff. Right. You know, and his buddy's like, we're not laborers. We don't need to be unionized. And like, he, he's clearly hanging out with communists and things like that. But in other scenes, he's going on about how important it is that America gets the bomb and obliterates Germany and proves its superiority and stuff. And they're like, but aren't you a communist? He's like, no, I'm not a communist. Like, but you hang out and sleep with communists. <laughs> he's <laughs> like, but that doesn't mean I'm a communist. So like, he's always being very cagey about where he stands on anything. And then even his friend, what's the guy, the guy from 10 Things I, I Hate About You? What's his name? Uh, David Krummeltz. I don't know the character name, but yeah. Right. Like they become friends and they're both supposed to be Jewish. And David Krummeltz is obviously like, because we're Jewish, you're doing this, right? And he's like, no, that's nothing to do with it. And then in other scenes, he's like, well, you know, if we don't do this, the Jews, <laughs> they'll be murdered. I'm like, he'll he'll just play any angle here, this guy, to appear in everybody's good graces and get his points across. It makes it hard to understand where he's coming from. Yeah, which it's a, that's by design, like to not, you know. Right, and the other characters hate him for it. Is that charisma because that was a word that was used to describe him in some of the documentary things that I've watched about him and I don't know that the writing of that of this character and the portrayal of the character really would that that that, that charismatic is the word I would use to describe either of those things I thought he was being very shrewd yes shrewd I is certainly a, a much better adjective for this than charismatic yeah. but that's I mean, and the womanizing thing is like he, they 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 gave you the impression not that he was a total cad, but like he had a relationship with with Florence Pugh for years, it seems, and I don't know, like just like it was the idea was that he he was sleeping with a lot of people. At the same yeah. time, and and, and like the, the thing about him that I thought was most interesting, uh, you know, that that I saw in the documentary pieces was that he was a very great physicist, but like, actually, he was a very good one, but not a great one. Like, he didn't win win a Nobel Prize, and people said like because he didn't do the work. He was too busy being charismatic and like getting himself involved with projects and big ideas and running stuff, managing people and dealing with all that aspect of, of, of science, but not actually like doing all the like the hard work. And they kind of joke about it here too. They say he's not good at math. Like he 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 understands things, you know, he hears the music without knowing how to play the tune. And like which is a really clever way of describing, you know, this guy's particular but I don't know, I felt that that it was a very roundabout way of describing the kind of scientist he was. Like I got a better sense of him as a person 
and as a manager of people than I did as a physicist. And they all revered him as a physicist. And like, he's not really behaving like a physicist. He's just directing the more talented people who are doing the hard math and the hard science. But, you know, it's a little bit like that thing, although it's a cheesy movie, um, but the Steve Jobs movie that Aaron Sorkin wrote where there's this scene between Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs where, you know, Wozniak says, like, what is it that you do? Because you can't write code. You can't do this. You can't do that. And the response is that, you know, whereas, you know, you play the violin and you play the, you know, you know the oboe, I play the orchestra. I can do all of the things at once in such a minimal but broad capacity that I can, you know, conduct and then create this, you know, great thing, which no one can do on their own. You know, it requires one person to do that role. And so, like, that's how I saw him. But, like, I don't know. It was weird. To me, like, he was so revered by the people in the story yeah, for well, being a the... scientist, but he wasn't really, that, that wasn't his skill. That's the Nolanness of it, where it's like he's supposed to be charismatic and he's supposed to be a good manager of people, but he comes across like everybody else. Everybody's the same. There are a few people feel like humans that smile and experience joy and are sexual beings and everything. Like the only time anybody kind of smiled and laughed was when um, Matt Damon was on screen. Yes. So like Killian Murphy and all the other physicists and, and mathematicians and everything, they're all the same. They all talk and they're all equally engaged and everything. So like who's smarter than who? I don't know. They all look like they're the same smart guy in the room. So why is Oppenheimer the one running it? I don't know. Cause he's the one, his name is the movie. I, I can't tell the difference. So like the movie sets him up as being very, very smart and he is, but he's more effective as a leader and, and communicator and a liaison for all of these people, you know, like the idea was that all of these people were supposed to be separated and, you know, compartmentalized and he helped bridge those gaps. But that is part of a three hour film that that part gets lost. Yeah. I mean, it's there and it was, it was so important to the story that it was the reason that you had all the all the people trying to, you know, do the thing that really runs through the movie, which is the removal of of his security clearance. Mm -hmm. Like, the fact that he was so against the organization that the military wanted to set up, and it was both the key, you were told that, like, this is what gave us the atomic bomb, was that he made everyone work together on this giant project rather than work separately. Like, we never, like, the, the, you know, they intimate that they never would have gotten there if he hadn't put everyone in, in the same room, and they, and they didn't want that. And it was that thing that, you know, had him develop animosities amongst other people who eventually were his downfall. The other thing about this was, the, like, the, there is no sense that I could tell of scale for what was happening to him. Like the removal of the man's security clearance. 
that's what that whole thing was about. It was deeply embarrassing and it was difficult for everyone involved and, you know, taken very seriously by a lot of people who were serious. But like that, that's the thing. He wasn't on trial. He wasn't going to go to jail. There was like the stakes were so low for that particular thing, at least to the to the the layman. And I was just like, "This is what we're fighting about." It's like he loses his like he hasn't worked for the government for years, and in fact, he's been a vocal opponent of the government for like the six years or seven years since he, you know, finished the Manhattan Project. Well, that's so. That's the key. He, it, and it's not explicitly stated. It's only hinted at, and then they just sort of talk around it. Without his security clearance, he has effectively no power in the government. People won't listen to him. He can't attend meetings. He can't influence policy. And they were trying to remove him of that because he was going against the proliferation of more bombs and the creation of a hydrogen bomb, which was even more powerful, and he was dead set against but like they they saw him as this thorn in their side. But since he had security clearance and he could attend meetings and he could interject and, you know, write up reports and criticize other people, they were like, how do we get him out of these high level meetings and get him away from podiums where he has no effectively no audience to, to listen to what he has to say? And they said, Well, we have to revoke his security clearances. That will that would take him away from levers of power. But you don't get that until the third hour when you realize just what is the point of giving away his security clearance because at first i was like well who cares if he can't do it the project's done and then i realized that like the hint in all those conversations they wanted to more like the project should not be shut down we should keep making more bombs and then we should also be deploying them new places and he's not again he's not with that and i was like oh i see what they're doing they don't want him there anymore because he's not going along with the program yeah it's just, and it's just you just have to really pay attention and I guess that yeah, that that wasn't very clear. Sorry, it wasn't. And also, like, it doesn't necessarily end the conversation. Like, the man's on the cover of Time magazine. He's incredibly famous. If he wanted to call up Time magazine and say, Hi, would you like my opinion on everything that happened at Los Alamos in the last five years? Like... The project is done. He had all the information. He he was denied access to people in government, but not to the press. No, but I, but I think because of the things that he was saying, the press didn't want to hear that. I mean, it's still really, you know, the after World War II, and he's sitting here like, well, now that we're done, we don't have to be doing this anymore. And everyone was like, I thought you were happy. Aren't you glad that we did this? You know? And at that point, what what good would public opinion due to him i don't know i guess to me like that it's one of those things where, where we live in an age now where like access to the press is everything you can accomplish a tremendous amount by just being on television and you don't need any real power you, you know you just need to manipulate a you know a certain number of people even a small number of people um but you just access to a TV camera or a Twitter account or whatever, you can do that. And so, like, you know, people don't need to be powerful people independent of the 
the the medium they choose to express themselves on. And it seems like like that's just something that's sort of lost a little, a little bit to us in this movie. And that like, yeah, he needed access, and they were denying him access to this, and it just didn't seem like a big deal to me. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't seem like a big deal until you you realize that because it, having access to the media then didn't do anything. If they weren't going to print you, you weren't going to get heard. Yeah, not like not like it is today. You know, and if you can't get heard back then, then no one's going to listen to you, and especially people who actually have power are not going to listen to you. You know. Yeah, I guess I just it's. I don't. Know, I have to watch it again. I and, and this is the first time where where I've said that where I actually want to do it. We're like, you know, like I feel it, I feel like there's a lot more here to unpack and that I really did miss something and I I, I I'm not giving the movie a fair shake and you know I mean like you make good points about it. like, yeah, this is very much a Christopher Nolan movie. It's not it's a it's a simple idea, it's not complex. It's told over you know, in an in an over dramatic fashion and people are written rather, you know, two two dimensionally for the most part. And um I mean I I guess what I found both interesting and also alienating was the like the way in which it was shot with so many, so many close-ups and like that you know the tightness of the frame they were you know they're all in that tiny room the whole time it's 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 designed to make you feel to feel um claustrophobic and um whereas you know the dark knight is a big broad movie and the prestige these are traditionally shot films about people, you know, there are wide shots and then there are mid shots and then there are tight shots. And I felt like every frame of this film was either incredibly wide, you know, like when when, when you're going over like the, like the, like the landscape and then incredibly tight where like like the, 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 the most mid shot you get is, isn't, isn't over the shoulder. Like on the train when they're with him and Damon talking to each other, but otherwise, like he's like right in the frame, like the whole time. His whole face is the whole goddamn frame of the movie. Yeah, well, you're you're trying to dramatize committee meetings and uh, you know dinner meetings and meetings on trains and meetings of scientific nerdy people. Like, there's no action or anything. There's nothing like that. It's it's just talking for three hours. It really so, is a lot of talking. I don't yeah. think people were prepared for that amount of talking. I don't know what we thought we were going to get. I, I don't. I don't think it was the shortest movie, but I didn't feel unnecessarily strenuous. The conversations felt that they had a flow to them, you know, because everybody was so good. Yeah. I mean, the cast was so good. Everyone was doing a plus work. You know, and everyone sort of knew what what it was that they were working on, so no one was chewing any scenery, and nobody was uh, overplaying their hand or anything like that. So, you know, the scenes all had a good flow, mm-hmm. except when he does the, the janky editing. But you know, for such dry subjects, it could have been worse. <laughs> you know, yeah, for the what they wanted to do, you know. There, there, 
<laughs> yeah, it could have been worse. The best way to get. Yeah, to talk about like to you know to to dramatize a closed door me- uh, meeting, in where someone is slowly embarrassed over the course of weeks. <laughs> Certainly, like to make that intense was yeah. right. You know, and 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 everybody was teasing about the the sex scenes with him and Florence Pugh, and they were awkward because. Christopher Nolan doesn't really write women very well, <laughs> but no, but you know, like even those scenes, I'm like, you know, they're, they're, they're talking. It's, it's not like it's, it's not cringy dialogue or anything. So I, I liked it. I, I thought it was good. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not bad. Again, like I really, I like, I, I'm sitting there going, oh, gee, we've been talking now for 40 minutes. Like, I don't feel like I've had it. I've said anything of value whatsoever in the last 40 minutes other than then, like, I should watch it again because there's just so much going on here and trying to keep up with the black and white versus the color and the black and white is fusion. Like, it, it only hit me like, like the next day. Oh, fusion was black and white and fission was in color. And so at some point they cross you know like at some point the the yes there's there, there's a change in the color palette as you inch closer to those two things coming together i guess is what it is well you're seeing it from different points of view so everything that's in black and white is from robert downey junior's character's point of view okay see I, this I'm, this is why i feel very un, un, unqualified to have a podcast about films like i it's a very clear <laughs> obvious thing that i just didn't catch a catch on oh yeah and so everything in color was from Oppenheimer's point of view. So like they're doing a meeting around the table with the giant flower in the middle of the table. Yeah. They keep like leaning over to like, who's over? (laughs) Have you heard about Newman? You know, like who's (laughs) over there? And like when it's in black and white, you see it from uh, Downey's point of view where he's mad at them. And Oppenheimer is deliberately cagey and being a pain in the ass and when you see it from Oppenheimer's point of view, it's where like he's struggling to get his point across that this is this is how it should be when we talk about nuclear weapons. We should not be proliferating proliferating them and things like that. So like they do cross at some points, you know, but but it's from a different part, person's point of view, which I thought worked really well because yeah, no, it's okay. You know, like Downey's point is that he helped destroy Oppenheimer because he felt slighted by him and other scientists. They didn't respect him as well. For he was running the atomic agency, but they looked down on him. And so when he sees it from his point of view in black and white, you know, they scowl at him, they say mean things, they embarrass him. And you see his face where he like scrunches up and looks like, you know, trying to hold it back. And when you see it from Oppenheimer's point of view, it's like He's just making jokes, and uh, you know, obviously, this guy is—he's a friend, but he's just the guy who runs everything. He's not really a scientist. We don't think about him at all, you know. So that's the kind of thing that Nolan does, where you know, he did it in Prestige, and he did it in Memento, where it's like you think you're looking at it one way, but other characters are seeing things from a different point of view, and it—it's not just like, oh, huh, I see the back of a guy's head versus the front. It's like the entire motivations of this person are different because he interpreted something differently. Changes the whole story. You know, if they had seen it the way that the audience or the other guys saw it, they might have reacted differently to to what was going on. 
right? And which is what I don't know. The aide, Robert Downey Jr.'s aide, the guy who played Solo in the Young Han Solo movie. Oh right, yeah, handsome chin man. Yeah, handsome chin guy. Like he kind of turns against him by the end of the movie, and he tells him, you know, Downey Jr. is like, you know, he turned Einstein against me, and him and Einstein wouldn't even talk to me. And he, the young guy, says at the end. Maybe they weren't even talking about you. You didn't yeah. even come on their radar. And when you see it from the other opposite points of view, you realize like that's what happened. And yet Danny Jr. completely destroys Oppenheimer because of that one little instance. Yeah, that that part was clear. I guess what I didn't understand is that like, yeah, because it was subtle enough. I should have picked up on it. I do feel feel, you know, feel foolish about it, but like, yeah, like people behave differently, and I guess I mean part of it that that that's just like a testament to the acting and and to and to the directing is to say like if it was too obvious it would look stupid, you know if it was you know very clear like you know we we see these in like old Star Treks where like if they were telling different points of view stories, you know one guy was obviously you know there'd be an an over embellishment of like one point of view over the other, and here it's very very subtle. So you kind of have to be really like looking for it, but you know, and looking back, you go, "Oh yeah, I guess that did happen." And then like this is, you know, he was angry here, but not angry here. And the Einstein thing was, you know, that that was really spelling it out. Like maybe they weren't talking about you at all. Me has me has nothing to do with you, you egocentric maniac. Yeah, yeah, but it was because it's a realistic story. It was it was done better than like when you watch Tenet. And like people are literally going backwards past you and you're seeing things from the wrong point of view. Like it's like this exact concept, you know, literally. <laughs> and I was like, okay, this is too much. <laughs> you know, but that was a sci-fi movie, so you're letting go. Yeah. But it's the same concept where it's like you're not seeing things the way other people see them. So I mean the thing I will say about this movie is that like you can't approach it the way that you and I normally approach a movie which is just to say like what did you think and then I say and then, then I you you give me your opinion and then we go you know based on like you know if we didn't like a lot about a movie we tend to go on about that for a half an hour and then at the end go well what did you like about the movie <laughs> and here I don't feel like we can have that secondary conversation because there's nothing to dislike about it per se there's just sort of a lot to unpack and you know the like the density of the movie is sort of its only barrier and that's something you can fix by simply watching it a second time but like nothing about it is bad it's long but that's not necessarily like a bad thing could you have told the story in less time eh, probably. probably i'm a big i'm a big fan of that in general, I think most movies are too long. Like the fact that Barbie is only an hour and 54 minutes, I think is a godsend because I have to go see that on Tuesday and I'm curious about it, but like I'm not two hours and 20 minutes curious. I say, well, I'm not even an hour and 54 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> that even seems like a stretch. Yeah. Um, so, and I'm so glad it's become a political football. That's a. Yeah, that'll that, make it fun to, that's to exciting. sit through. Yeah. Good, good times. Yeah. I I think this one is um I think people were confused that they thought it would just be about the atomic bomb and that it was about more and then I also think that you're supposed to sort of it's supposed to be ambiguous how you feel about him 
because he's a little bit shrewd and cagey about his own motivations and you're supposed to sort of feel bad for him that he he did something that he wanted to do which was also terrible but at least he stopped you know trying to make it even worse than he already did you know he was very much against the h-bomb and all those other things and I think if you're looking at it objectively, you don't come to that conclusion. You know, like he always kind of shrugs, like there were no spies at my place. There, you know, of course we should be cooperating and, and with other countries and sharing information. And, and we don't want this this information to to spread and, and bombs to get off and everything. And it's like, yeah, but there were spies, and you were careless a little bit, and you were clearly hanging out with communists and was it right to railroad everyone who was suspected of being a communist? No, of course not. But you know, don't bullshit me and tell me that it's raining when you're pissing on my leg. Like (laughs) I I don't think that the sympathy that the the movie was going toward to give to Oppenheimer gets there because he's, he's not a perfect person, obviously. And he's clearly in the wrong in a lot of instances. Yes. And there's also the very heavy hand, I feel, of the uh, of the writer-director involved with this in that, like, you know, if you... I guess if you wanted to mine through everything that was ever written about him or, or everything th- that he wrote, you could make a movie like this, and it's fine. But, you know, just basically... If you go back and watch some straightforward footage from his interviews, he was very like, you yeah, know, I was fine with this. This was okay. Like I, we were at war. This is really not a thing. I like, you know, like there was there was sort of a clarity to a lot of this stuff that is made more complex to make it dramatic for the film. And like I said, like I'm sure there's. You know, I'm not sure. There is a lot more about him and by him that is, that has been produced that would give you enough fodder to make a movie, uh, you know, like this. But at the same time, like sometimes, I get frustrated with the creation of complexity in characters for the sake of dramatization that is is essentially dishonest and done so just to make an interesting film, kind of a thing, and. This is probably the best example of me going, I don't really know a lot about this. And it's, you know, it was handled so delicately that you really could make it, you know, an argument that this is a pretty accurate representation of his cagey, wishy-washy nature that like, you know, what I saw what, what two interviews with the guy and then therefore, I, you know, I shouldn't feel like I know what I'm talking about. But at the same time, it's like, are we just making a... A mountain out of a molehill 70 years later to go, see, atomic weapons are bad. Like, well, we all know that already. Like, it's not like it's a... Yeah, well, I don't know if they spent a lot of time doing that. The end of the movie and like lands on that note. Well, that That's the thing with him and Einstein. But I think it's more of a... Because I think the last hour is them, you know, how much, how much of this do we want to do? Because, like, you're right, like, they're so intent on making a bomb before Germany, they don't even hesitate. Like they rush, they're in a hurry. And they tease the one guy who's busy building an H bomb, like in the back of the room, where he's like, I'm working on this. What are you guys working on? And they're, <laughs> and they're like, want to get rid of him. And they're like, he's like, Tell yeah, her, yeah. Do it. 
you know, like it's not until afterwards when he realizes what he's done and that it's not going to bring about this like kumbaya world of peace that he sort of like hopes for that he starts having second thoughts, you know, like, I mean, we, we take it for granted now because we've been living in that world, but they were not living in a world where you could have a weapon that would just instantly kill everyone on the planet. And so they make it and his, his, once it's done, his thought process is, well, this should end everything now because who on their, in their right mind would ever want to mess with something like this? You know, we, we've proven we can kill ourselves. So this should be the end. And it turns out that it just makes everything worse. And then he really is like, oh no, like, oh. but like up until that point, he has this like naive view of how things are going to go. Um, and I know people were debating like all that stuff. Like, should we have dropped the bomb? Like, I'm I'm not gonna get into that. So, um, yeah, no, I can't. I can't. You I know, can't, we can't talk about that honestly. I mean, we don't, we don't know enough about that. I don't. Yeah, I'm not gonna. I wasn't there. So the the movie, I think, wisely sticks to him rather than that stuff. But yes, it it doesn't it doesn't flatter him. Like I, I didn't walk out of there thinking like, well, he was sort of right. I walked out of there like, what an idiot. <laughs> yeah. Like and I know Truman, like Gary Oldman is just true. Oh my god, Gary Oldman, that was great. Like what? That who? It's Gary Oldman, everybody. Yeah, it took me a second. I'm like that's that's Gary Oldman, isn't it? That's Gary Oldman. And it's like, and apparently he had that reaction to him where he was like, "Get this pansy out of here!" But you know, I don't. Yeah, I don't doubt that at all. He was such a machine, a politician that had yeah. no fucking patience for anybody who wasn't there to help him. Yeah. So, and, and I'm not. I'm not saying I agreed with Truman, but you know, I'm closer on that side than Oppenheimer. Where I'm like, dude, grow up. Like, I don't know. Just be open minded. I had no idea that was Emily Blunt. Yeah, she. I thought she it was, was Sarah Paulson. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I was like, that looks like Sarah Paulson, but she looks too young to be Sarah Paulson. And then, then when I got home, when I looked it up, I'm like, oh, my God, that was Emily Blunt. Yeah, no, that was Emily Blunt. I was Blunt. stunned. Um, there's, like, a bunch of hidden guys in here. So, like, um, the guys I caught, like, the real deep cut, I thought, was... So, the three guys on the committee to revoke his clearance. Remember the really old guy? Yeah, who's that? He was from Chernobyl. Oh, okay. He was in... You, you've seen that, that right? I only saw the first episode. Okay, so I, I believe he's in that first episode. Remember that? So in the beginning of that show, um, I can't believe you didn't watch the other episode. Oh, the show was so fucking good. Um, there's like, they're all down there in the bunker, and they're all kind of arguing what to do, and they're like, some guy's like, we should get out of here. Other people like, no, we have to remain calm. And the old guy bangs on his cane and stands up, and you think he's about to give like a rousing speech about like what's the right thing to do here but he ends up saying how do we get everyone to stay in line and not freak out we lie to them and make sure they enjoy it that was him yeah i I do remember that yeah it's a fascinating moment in that show where to talk about like it's not about doing the right thing it isn't about saving people's lives it's about making sure that everyone does what they're told yeah i should probably i'll get to it eventually it's 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 great it's just fucking great and then the guy who was like the um the aggressive attorney uh oh yeah that guy yeah i can't think of his name but i know he he played ted kennedy in the uh the the 
uh, the, the Chappaquiddick movie. Yeah, he, he's been in a lot. He was, yeah. um, what do you call it? He was John Connor in one of those horrible uh, Terminator movies. Yeah, he's been was in a he? few things. A while yeah. ago, yeah. Yeah, he was that. Um, yeah. it was Kenneth Branagh plays Niels Bohr. Oh, yeah, Kenneth Branagh. Um, just like, just like, there's nobody not who's like Josh you know, Hartnett was very good. Oh my God, that was Josh Hartnett, the the other professor, the handsome guy. Oh my God, <laughs> my brain is exploding. Yeah, Josh, Josh Hartnett. Hartnett. Been wondering where you've been for the last fifteen years. That answers that question. Apparently working. I yeah. thought like you know, this. This man seems far too handsome to be a scientist. Does he? He he looked like some other actor. I couldn't place him. Not Billy. He looked like a weird discount Billy Campbell, <laughs> the guy who played the Rocketeer. I was like, it's not obviously not Billy Campbell, but who is this person? And I was like, oh, it's Josh Hartnett, who I haven't seen in I don't know how long. Oh God, man! Now I'm like, who else was in this movie? I didn't quite realize. Like that. Oh yeah, there's a lot of people. That's like when I when you saw. James uh, James Spader in Lincoln. Everyone was like, who is this guy? And you're like, oh my God, it's James Spader. He was the best part of that movie, I thought, after, you know. It then, restarted then his lives. career. Yeah. Yeah. Suddenly he was in everything after that. No, he was great. Um, looking at this list now. James Darcy, yeah. What was that guy? Kenneth Prana. It's just a lot of names that you know. Like nobody is bad. Tim Tom Conti played Albert Einstein. What else was he in that I would know? Oh, freaking yeah, nothing. He's... The Midsummer. Doc Martin. He was in Paddington Two. <laughs> Still have to watch those. Everyone says they're good. He was he was a prisoner in The Dark Knight Rises. Well, that's the other thing too about Christopher Nolan movies is that. Everybody's from all the other ones. I'm surprised yeah. they didn't get that Asian guy in there. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, what's it, Ken Watanabe? I'm surprised he wasn't in there somewhere. Yeah, I... that's why. Like when I saw Gary Gary oh, Oldman, I was Matthew like, Modine too. He was one of the yes, scientists. Matthew Modine. Yeah, he's he's actually a very good actor. Like Matthew Modine. There was there was nobody in here who was bad. Um. The the British uh, the, the German slash British scientist who who ends up spying for the Russians he's uh, you know um, he's famous from something else so I can't think of from what mm. but um yeah like, you know, nobody like, uh, Malik I think I said Casey Casey Affleck yes who was he again he was uh, Colonel Pash. He was like the colonel that uh, um, is like out to get him. Oh yes, yeah. He was, and he was like super creepy about it and like intimidating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I find it funny that like Casey Affleck has become a far more talented actor than his 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 older brother, it seems. And Ben Affleck is like a much. Um, um, he's a better like director than actor at this point. Mm. So, Lyndon Johnson was a character in this. I didn't quite catch that somewhere. Mm. Hap Lawrence plays Lyndon Johnson. 
missed that. But there's a there's a lot of a lot of people in this movie. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of dialogue. 128 people spoke in this movie. Bananas. But um. But yeah, I mean, so I, and I think I, ultimately, I liked like, <laughs> I liked it. I think Cillian Murphy or Killian Murphy, I think is how you say his name. I think he was excellent. I think that's the one thing we didn't really talk about enough here is that like he was really good in really becoming another person. And Matt Damon doesn't do that. Matt Damon comes on and is like, is Matt Damon, and he's very yeah, good and very entertaining. But he's always Matt Damon. He's the only one that where he when he showed up, I'm like, it's Matt Damon in a bad mustache and a weird outfit. And like he gained thirty pounds, and he has like, yeah, you know, uh, like like he shaved and got razor burn. Like that's that's what he looks yeah. like. He's, even know, his little, even his assist, his assistant was played by Dane DeHaan, and even he was really good. Yeah, like he he did a better job blending into the background of the movie than Matt Damon ever would. Yeah, Matt but, Damon but doesn't right. do that. Killian Murphy was uh, was very very good. He was phenomenal. Yeah. You know, and. And and he played him across a, a whole spectrum of ages too, so it was. It's 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 very impressive. So yeah. like, and I I was telling my wife about because she didn't see it, and I said, you know, Killian Murphy was fantastic. She was like, "Who is that?" I said, "He was the scarecrow in Batman Begins." Because she's seen that, she goes, "Oh, that guy." Yeah, it's like he's not just like creepy. I said, "No, he plays a very good creep, but he's very good in this too." No, he's. I I can't think of a thing he's been bad in. I've seen you know I haven't seen a lot of with him, but like he's never bad. No, no. He's no blue eyes on the planet Earth too. Well, that's why they have all those uh, all those zooms. <laughs> yeah, him and da- him and da- Daniel Craig have a blue off. Yeah, really. Oh my god. And he has like the bony cheeks. Like he looks like uh, he looks like Lurch from the Adams family. And he looks like Oppenheimer. Like there are there are it great did. pictures of him in those with the, with that hat. What a great hat! The costumes I think were great in this movie. It, it was an incredibly well costumed movie. Like. It looks just—it looks great. Everything looks fantastic. Everyone looks good. They sound good. You know, it's just—it's the story is just dense and like you know, I—I I, I can't even say whether it's—it's it's, you know, great or good. I just think it's—it's it's airing on good than great, just because of like the weight of it all and the, and like the you know, the, the thinness of some of the characters. But um, yeah, but I—I uh, I was not—I was not bored. No. Yeah, no. But if you guys have any thoughts about Oppenheimer, if you want to tell us that we're crazy or wrong, you should let us know on Instagram and or X. It sounds stupid to say. (laughs) Whatever the hell this site is called now. (laughs) X.com. You can tell us on Facebook. You can email us at threedrinksandpodcast.gmail.com. You can thread us. at. The world is falling apart. Let's just... (laughs) It's just that we somehow the atom bomb didn't do it, but this might. It's not over yet. Yes. Well, we'll see weirder. about that. And if you want to buy a T-shirt with our logo on it, you can go to tpublic.com and do so at that website. Yes. What better way to to die in a rain of fire than wearing <laughs> one of our T-shirts? I can't. I I wear one all the time. <laughs> Even in the shower. <laughs> I slept in it last night. Uh, anything else? Uh, no. I think we're good. All right. As always, please drink responsibly, and we'll talk to you all next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.